From Tokyo, Japan, I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way they affect our daily lives. Coming up on today's show, Professor Gerald Pollock talks about the fourth phase of water. So stay tuned right here for the Grok Science Show. Well, welcome back to the show. In high school chemistry, we're taught that water comes in three main phases, solid, liquid, and vapor. But could there be another phase? Well, joining us right now is our very special guest, Dr. Gerald Pollack from the University of Washington Department of Bioengineering. He's written the book Cells, Gels, and Colloids, and the Engines of Life. Today, he'll tell us a little bit about a possible fourth phase and what this can mean for biology. Dr. Pollock, thank you so much for joining us here today. It's a pleasure, Frank. Good good to be with you. And by the way, just before you get to the first question, yeah, the book that you mentioned, Cells, Gels in the Engine of Life, actually that that book uh, was published about 15 years ago and I it might be more relevant to refer to to the newer book, which is I think what we're going to be talking about and it's called The Fourth Phase of Water. Uh, colon, beyond uh, solid, liquid, and vapor. So I just thought I'd mention it because it's perhaps more relevant to to our discussion. That was published, I think, three years ago. Let's head from there. But the first book is, is a bad book, but it just, um, it's the predecessor to, to, the, to what we're going to be talking about, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, what exactly is the fourth phase of water, and how do we observe it? Good question. So, you know, many of us would think that the fourth phase of water is some minuscule remote quantity of water that appears uh, un- under strange circumstances and is the stuff of that the chemists might be interested in, you know, in unusual cases, but it's not, it's not true at all. The fourth phase is a phase, it's in between a solid and a liquid, and it's there all the time, uh, and there's a lot of it. In fact, it's the water that pretty much fills our bodies. Um, and, and so we, we, we found it's a, it's a phase of water that might be called um, liquid crystalline water, and it's a phase where the molecules are actually lined up like a crystal, not exactly a crystal, but a, a loosely structured uh, crystal, like a liquid crystal. And it forms next to certain kinds of surfaces, actually hydrophilic surfaces, water-loving surfaces. So you can imagine imagine a surface and then imagine some water uh, sitting next to the surface. And what happens is as soon as the water meets that surface, the nearby molecules, the ones that are uh, 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 practically adjacent to the surface, undergo a transformation. And they trans- transform from the ordinary water molecules with the random orientation fluctuating around a picosecond time scale, and they begin to organize. And it's not just the first 
molecular layer that organizes, but uh, first, second, third, and it keeps going. And it, it goes typically with, with many of the surfaces that we've looked at, it may go to a million molecular layers. We're talking about tens or hundreds of micrometers. It's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a large amount. You can even, when you, when you can detect that zone, I can mention how you detect it, how we detected it, and others can detect it. It you can see it with your naked eye because um, it's so so extensive. And as I said, it it's the stuff that fills your cells. Further to that point, inside the cell, the cell is packed with macromolecules, and those molecules are are charged or hydrophilic, mostly on the outside, and that's what interfaces with the cell water, and and. From what I just said, the, the water that is near one of those interfaces transforms itself to this fourth phase of water, um, and and therefore, since since the cell is almost all this kind of interfacial water, because every every water molecule is right near a surface, there's mm-hmm. almost no space for water. Then practically all of the water inside the cell is this fourth phase of water. It's not a new idea, actually. It's an idea that dates back um, many decades, uh, and, and even, even the suggestion came more than 100 uh, years ago uh, that, uh, from some of the physical chemists and colloid chemists that, you know, water has such strange properties that, that if, you, if you consider water to have only three states or um, three phases, the solid, liquid, vapor, you simply can't explain all of these properties. And even to this day, you'll find various websites that talk about the, uh, quote, anomalous features of water. And they talk about, uh, there's a, a list on one of those websites uh, of 50 or 60 different features of water that you simply can't explain. And so, you know, if you can't explain it, you can kind of label it as an anomaly. Or you could say, there's something wrong with the way we think about water, because if you got the right framework, you ought to be able to explain everything, or essentially everything. What I'm getting at is that the need for, for identifying a, a fourth phase is very old. It's not new at all. Mm-hmm. And, so is the underlying basis the hydrogen bonds and the way protons transfer very quickly between water molecules? I think not. Uh, so from, from our experiments, um, uh, well, um, well, the first thing we found when we identified this zone in, in the laboratory or this, this area, we found that if we put one of these hydrophilic uh, surfaces or substances in, in water and we added little particles, microspheres, we found that they were excluded from this zone. So you'd look at a chamber and you'd see a chunk of material, and there was a region right around that chunk of material that had no particles. The rest of the chamber was full of particles, but mm-hmm. it was excluded from that region. And so that's why we, we called it exclusion zone, or EZ for short, e- easy to, to remember. But, oh, I see. but the thing is, we've, as we started um, making uh, a physical chemical measurements on this region, everything we looked at, there were seven or eight different features, and, and by now 10 or so, everyone was different. You look at the viscosity, you look at the relaxation times, the uh, use spectroscopy to, to look at it, and, and we found that every one of these measures gave results that differed from the same measurements conducted on ordinary water. And so we realized this is something 
that is really different. And the shocker came when we found that this water is not neutral. This kind of hit us like a rock hitting our head at that. How could this possibly be? But we, we started experimenting with electrodes. We used uh, micro electrodes. They taper to a tiny point, And this is widely used in in biology to measure the electrical potential inside of cells without killing the cell um, because it comes to a very fine point. And we use these electrodes to measure the electrical properties of, of this exclusion zone or fourth phase. And, and we found that it was typically negatively charged, big negative charge um, throughout this zone. Now, water is neutral, but <laughs> this is negatively charged. And, and so we, we realized this is a really different kind of structure that you can't necessarily explain by some hydrogen bonds that may bond a particular way. It seemed like a wholly different structure. We we deduced the structure based on the physical chemical properties that I mentioned, and it's too long to go into in a, you know, in a brief inter- interview. It's, it's described in great detail in the book that I mentioned, The Fourth Phase of, of Water. But we think the evidence points to um, hexagonal honeycomb sheets stack on one another. So each sheet, if you look down um, perpendicular to the sheet, you see a series of hexagons that are linked to one another. It, it looks like a honeycomb, and then the next sheet is on that, and so on. So this is, this is a very different structure from ordinary water that we, we look at. And... So uh, obviously there's a phase transition and phase transitions right. usually imply energy right. being absorbed or given off. So in comparison to the say the ice transformation from liquid to ice, uh, where, where does this come in? Yeah, so that's a really good way of putting it because because that that's a that's a clue that actually led to this structure. So the structure actually is kind of ice-like because the ice has these uh, hexagonal mo- motifs, o- o- ordinary ice. If you look at it at the right angle, you can see sheets, actually sheets of uh, honeycomb sheets that are the, the, where, where, where the hexagons are in register with, with one another. Well, this structure is actually not too different from ice. There are several differences, but the, the, there, there's more similarity and there are differences in, in the case of the fourth phase uh, the sheets are actually staggered. They're shifted by half of the oxygen and oxygen distance, shifted from one another. That shift allows them to stick together weakly by electrostatic bonds. And so what we found experimentally is that if you want to freeze water, we all think you go from water to ice, but we found that you must go through this intermediate phase. In other words, as you cool the water, the water turns into this fourth phase, and the fourth phase turns into ice. Right, and the same thing the other direction. If you start with ice and you melt the ice, we have a published paper on this a couple of years ago. The first thing that happens is, is that the ice turns into easy or fourth phase water, and that fourth phase water then, you might say, degrades in, into ordinary water. So this was an interesting finding because, again, as I, as I mentioned, um, there are a lot of things that are not clear about um, about the formation of ice, and and they seem to fall into place uh, with this intermediate uh, phase. So it's it's kind of pleasing to get a, an understanding of this. I'm not sure if, if you're aware of some weird things about ice, like the so-called Mpemba effect. Do you know about that? 
the density falls into this, but Mapemba was a, a middle school student in Africa, somewhere in Africa, in a country that used to be called Tanganyika. And, um, and they were asked to, a middle school students had a cooking class and they were supposed to make ice cream. And so all the students mixed the cold water with powder, put it in the freezer, and pretty soon, you know, uh, an hour or two or three later, their frozen treat, uh, this so-called ice cream, was available. They can eat it. They were all happy. But Mapemba decided to try something different. Instead of using cold water, he used warm water. And it turned out that his ice cream was ready faster than than the ones who use cold water. Uh, and so this is a kind of a puzzle that has intrigued people for many years. It's called the Mapemba effect. Uh-huh. And it was so interesting that the Royal Society put out a contest. You know, what's the explanation for this? Because there's no easy explanation. And I, I, I won't go into what I think is the answer because it involves a, a couple of steps, but I think it falls out directly from the paradigm that I've been talking to you about. But the surprise is the Royal Society got so so many potential explanations, and that, you know they had to pick out a winner. And so it took them many many months longer than they expected because there were so many submissions for them to finally decide on on the answer. And and I, I can't tell you in detail what what the answer was, but somebody was anointed, and his explanation is the one that won prize. So another one of those uh, interesting features of water that ordinarily not so obvious how to how to explain it. May I get back to the energy issue because sure. we're touching on it. So how does this form? You know, usually when you're creating order out of disorder, you need to put energy into it. It's kind of like um, to avoid thermodynamic terms. The entropy. Think about entropy. Yeah, yeah, reduce entropy. But you can. It's kind of convenient to look at it as 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 your desk, or your your office, or your room. You know, it progressively gets messy doesn't take much energy to get it messy, but if you want to put it back in order, you need to put some energy in. You may mm-hmm. need to spend a, an hour or two getting things organized. And, and so the analogy is, is apt that in, in order to build this kind of ordered phase, you need to put energy in. And where does the energy come from? We, it took us a really long time to, to figure this out, and the answer turned out to be right under our noses, and that is light. So really simple uh it, it and it was it was a student who in my laboratory who who actually performed the experiment he was doing something that he was told not to do <laughs> you know <laughs> he, he, we we expect them to do the experiments and uh keep their noses to the grindstones but uh not really we actually give them a lot of latitude and this student was uh playing with with a, a chamber where we had uh, the hydrophilic material and the water and, and, and the, the particles and such. And right next to the setup was one of these gooseneck lamps. And, you know, he thought, let me have some fun. So he took the gooseneck lamp and turned it on and shined it on the chamber. And if you look through the microscope, you can see that the zone grew like crazy. And then he pulled the lamp away and he watched it return to its initial state. So, you know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that <laughs> it looked like light is is actually responsible for building this uh, this ordered ordered array and and naturally we did a whole series of experiments at different wavelengths to see which wavelengths were were the most powerful in building it and so we looked at 
UV light, we looked at the visible spectrum, and we looked at infrared, and, and all of those had some effect, but infrared was extremely powerful. Very small amount of infrared light, uh, mid-infrared mostly, but, but throughout the infrared spectrum. You could turn on an LED that uh, emitted infrared light, three micrometers is actually the one that is wavelength, is the one that seems to us has been the most powerful, and leave it on. And this, this zone could expand up to, we found a factor of 10 times. It grew by that, but just wow. a trivial amount. <laughs> yeah, right. And so this is cool because, because there are a number of things that happen. First is you're getting the zone to grow, and then, you know, I mentioned that the zone was negatively charged. And the reason beyond that is actually positive charge. And so it's kind of like a battery. So mm. by putting on light, uh, you're, you're getting uh, more charge separation in this battery. And so you, essentially, we found you can get electricity from this. Uh, uh, you know, it's like a photovoltaic cell. It's, sure. uh, it's water. <laughs> so it so this infrared light, does it correspond to a type of motion of the water molecule? Well, yeah. I mean, usually any kind of electromagnetic energy is is that charges are moving around, and, right? And and so inevitably it comes from that. And you might say a side observation is we actually measured the amount of infrared energy that's coming from the water, and we looked at the ordinary water, and next to it the fourth phase water, and the fourth phase water the charges don't move around that much because. It's like a crystal. Things are set in place. Mm -hmm. And as a result, the amount of infrared energy generated by this fourth phase water is much less than generated by ordinary uh, water. From that, we, we learned that it's a, a pretty stable structure. But then you put in infrared energy and this thing. And so it's very exciting because if you if you think you can think in, in several different realms. One is in the realm of technology, and we actually do have a company that we, we formed to see what we could do about, about using this and exploiting this around, around the world for capitalizing on, on the energy that's always around us and using water, you know, renewable resource, to get electricity. And so that's one, one aspect, and we're, we're working on that. And another aspect is your body. And this is where I think is part of the real future of this. First, the recognition that in your body, it's not really mostly H2O. It's this fourth phase of water, which is actually H3O2. Um, that would be the, the chemical formula. And a lot of people don't realize that the people who are involved with integrative medicine, alternative medicine, they, they've really taken up this idea because they understand how critically important water is for all kinds of health. You know, and if you if you don't understand what the water is actually doing <laughs> in your body, then you won't get the right answer. And and most most scientists have um, have are under the the um, you might say the belief system that water in the body, first of all, is is H two O, and, and and secondly, is only a background carrier of the more important molecules of life. You know, like DNA and RNA and proteins and such and enzymes, but the 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 general consensus is just like a bathtub in which those molecules sit. It doesn't do anything. However, if you go back decades, even centuries, but but I hesitate to go go that far. But people have known uh, that that water is centrally involved in everything the body does. It's just now been ignored by mainstream medical and biological people. I give one example is Albert St. Georgie, who many people, Nobel laureate for 
discovering vitamin C and many things about muscle and considered the father of modern biochemistry, a really totally amazing guy, a Nobel laureate, so to speak. <laughs> and one of there were lots of famous lines that came from him. He was a seminal thinker, and one of them was, life is water dancing to the tune of solids. So he, he knew that water was central for everything that the body does. And our stuff basically builds on, on the shoulders of giants like Albert St. Georgie. And another one came after him is Gilbert Ling, who's now 97, uh, 98, and still um, kicking. And, and he's written six or seven books um, about water inside the cell. And I, I must say that the impetus for our work came almost directly from him. He, he marshaled voluminous evidence that the water inside the cell was not just ordinary water molecules with the properties of ordinary water molecules, but actually that the molecules were lined up in some way, were organized. Uh, he didn't use the term liquid crystal, but basically he used the term structured or ordered. And I was so impressed. Uh, I, I, I remember meeting him and a bunch of people at a conference, people who had evidence to support, support his point of view. And I was so stimulated, I took one of his books and I gave it to my students and postdocs, and the response uniformly was, this guy is on to something incredibly important. I wrote the book that you mentioned at the opening, Cells, Gels, and the Engines of Life, to, you might say, popularize his ideas about ordered water inside the cell or structured water. And it, the book turned out to have gone gone further than, than in a slightly different direction, but, but the book compiles a lot of evidence demonstrating that the water inside the cell is not like a glass of water. The molecules are organized. Okay, so I present this background because we're talking about energy and we're talking about infrared light. So you and I, and those who are listening, I, I think, are all receiving infrared light. Um, so, from the sun. <laughs> well, ultimately from the sun, but, but if, you know, if we're inside a room, so... I'm sitting here speaking to you from my office, and if I were to turn off the light and close the shades, it could get pretty dark in here, and if I whipped out my camera, I wouldn't see anything, and, and my eyes don't see a whole lot either. But if I took out an infrared camera, which is sensitive to infrared radiation instead of visible radiation, I get a beautiful picture of, a, of the map of the world that's sitting on my wall, the painting by a friend, and the candies that are sitting on my table, etc., etc., because everything is generating infrared light. It's mm -hmm. there, and it's, we all learn, you studied chemistry, uh, if I mm -hmm. remember correctly, and you learned a lot about free energy. This is free energy. It's literally free because it's there for the taking. No, nobody is charging you a nickel for it. <laughs> it's there, and you almost can't get rid of it. Uh, and so because this energy is around all the time, it means that the EZ or fourth phase water is around all the time because it's in the ambient environment, and therefore you've got it. You've got this water that is built, and if you expose yourself to more infrared energy, it gets bigger. You get more of it. That leads to a, um, I hate to say clinical, but I, it's really what, I, what I'm after is, is uh, you know, how, to, how to deal with pathologies. So many, many pathologies are associated with dehydration. It means the cell mm -hmm. doesn't have the, the amount of water that it ought to be having. And at my age, uh, people, people who, who are just born are roughly 80% water. And when they get to be my age, they, they're down to, it's a progressive decline, down to about 60% water. So, so we're actually pretty dehydrated. And when people 
get gray hair and and lose it, they have to make sure that they maintain really good hydration. And obviously, what you need to do, the first thing is drink water, because without the raw material, you don't get it. But there are other things that you can do that we, we know makes you feel better, like, uh, for example, a sauna. So I remember my experience a few times in Russia and Finland, especially, attending a meeting, a conference, it was the evening dinner, it was getting really late. All I wanted was for the bus to announce we're going back to the hotel. <laughs> and instead of that, there was an announcement that, okay, now it's time to partake of the sauna. And they had three, four different ones, uh, one, uh, f- for the women, for the men, one's dry, one's wet, but all of them were hot. And the heat means is that you're generating infrared energy. So what you're doing is sitting and exposing yourself to infrared energy and that energy, as I mentioned, builds easy water. What you're, uh, what you're doing, reason why, I know in my own experience, when I walked out of there and took my shower afterward, I felt like it's morning. I'd already been to the hotel, and I'm ready to go for the entire next day. It was so incredibly refreshing. And a lot of people report that. So what's the reason? Well, you know, we, we, we may think it's, it's purely psychological, um, uh, the heat is somehow doing something to our brain, and it, it might be in part, but, but because of our experiments and what we found, we know that absorbing the infrared energy, the heat, is going to be building easy water. So our cells will be, begin to get rehydrated, and the cells work best if they're fully hydrated. Someone who's 15 years old or can run the marathon better than I can run the marathon at my age. And, and so it's, it's rebuilding the water that's necessary inside the cell for the proteins in the cell to function. Every protein is surrounded by this kind of water. If you don't have enough of it, the protein doesn't know what to do. It can't do its thing. Uh, if it's a muscle protein, it can't work and your muscles are not working as as they should. If it's a brain protein, your brain is not working. You may have a headache or uh, fatigue or what have you. And if you can provide this water again, then you're back to normal the way you, you should be. So, so this is this finding uh, about the light or infrared energy building the water is central to to our very existence, to maintaining good health. There are many more things, but I, I, I want to let you ask the more questions because I'm afraid I'm monopolizing this conversation. Thanks, Gerald. And that concludes the first part of our interview with Gerald Pollack from the University of Washington. We've been discussing the fourth phase of water here on the Barack Science Show. Tune in again next week for the second part of our interview. In the meantime, you can check us out at the web at www.grox.net, on Facebook and Twitter. You can also email us at science at grox.net. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Ling. Stay tuned here for more music. <laughs>